This is our last time in Revelation until September. Just so you understand what's going to be going on, please keep coming to midweek. Uh, Next week, Pastor Ben will be personally offended if you don't come because he is going to be teaching us from the Psalms uh, again. So uh, he'll be here teaching next week. I'm taking a brief vacation. The week after that, we're not supposed to have church because we take like a week off before school starts, let the kitchen team breathe, get ready, gear up. Here we go, we're back. So we won't have church in here, but weather permitting, you all are invited to my front yard, okay? Bring a chair to our front yard and we're going to just sing songs in my front yard. My wife and I just want to do that with you. So you don't have to come. It won't be live streamed, so you got to be there to experience it. But uh, yes, on Wednesday the 23rd, we're not putting it on social media. You want to hear about it? You're going to hear about it here at the church and in a round in conversation. It's just a, it's a pastor's informal invite to his yard. Come and sing some songs, and uh, Katie and I would love to see you there. And then uh, the 30th, we have our business meeting, members meeting, and then on the 6th, we will be back in Revelation. So... Lord willing, that's how this month will go. Tonight we are in Revelation 18. We finally, finally get rid of Babylon tonight. I mean, she has been around for a few weeks now, and uh, it is time to lay Babylon to rest, but she is laid to rest in judgment. Don't care how, I want it now. You recognize those words? It's the famous last words of Veruca Salt, the nasty little girl from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, who was so spoiled that Wonka's factory determined her to be a bad egg. And the world lives by this mantra. They want pleasure now. They want power now. They want profits now. These things must be had in immediacy. Don't care how. I want it now. And so the world gets into bed with Babylon People of the world give themselves over to the harlot who promises these things to them if they will just tip back the cup of her sexual immorality and drink it up. And at times, it is hard for godly people on the earth to observe what's going on, to look at the wicked in bed with Babylon, drinking up the immorality, and yet they seem to prosper. They have the pleasure, they have the power, and they have the profits. Maybe you flip through the channels and you land on the Kardashians. I don't think they're on the channel flipping anymore. I think you've got to stream them these days. But let's say you were flipping through and you landed on the Kardashians, and in about two minutes you saw a variety of godless things that, that made you feel horrible inside. And you said, how in the world are these the people with all the pleasure? How in the world are these the people with all the money? How are these the people with all the power? As a godly person, you might feel like you are abstaining from the world in futility. You might feel like you're pursuing the Lord and all you reap is affliction. Meanwhile, the godless, they advance. They grow more affluent, more authoritative. You would agree with the choir director of King David, Asaph, who said this about the godless. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And in observing this and comparing it with his own godly life, he was really struggling. He said, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Our brother Asaph was trying to reconcile these two realities. I live for the Lord, yet I suffer. 
They live for themselves, yet they prosper. And it made him mentally tired to think about this. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And maybe you are weary tonight from the same business. You have been trying to reconcile your struggles with the blessings of people who oppose God and seemingly have hate for Him. And and you're just worn out. You are worn out from watching Babylon prosper from your place of affliction. I hope Revelation 18 helps you tonight. Because sometimes we need to remember how dangerous the pinnacle of prosperity actually is. The world thinks they're standing on top of the globe, getting everything they want with no God to answer to. And Revelation 18, 9-19 shows how this pride will end in tears. We pick up where we left off a week ago. We've seen five of the seven cycles of Revelation pass. We're in the midst of the sixth, focused on this comparison between two men and two, or two women and two cities. The two women being compared are the great prostitute, Babylon, and the church, the bride of Christ, the people of God. Babylon, the city, and New Jerusalem, the city. The great prostitute is made up of those who reject God's provision of salvation in Christ. The evil network of humanity. Babylon, the city, is made up of those who dwell on the earth and bow down to the dragon's beast. The other body is made up of those who are in covenant with God through Christ. The other city is made up of those who dwell in the Son, and they bow down to Him, and they hail Him as the King. We're not quite at the point of seeing the glory of the Bride of Jesus. That's September 6th. It's close. But tonight, like I said, finally we get Babylon's funeral, and I'm ready for it. Aren't you? I mean, after weeks, you're just like, enough with Babylon! Get her out of the scene! Well, she's out of the scene tonight. Her old friends, they're not quite ready. They're going to stand up tonight to eulogize her at the funeral. Let me tell you some stories about the great whore Babylon, to use the KJV language. She is laid to rest by the justice of God today, but a few words before she meets her destruction. And we will see how God takes the Veruca Salt kingdom of man and he flips it on its head in his judgment. And when he flips it, there will be somebody else on top. Revelation 18, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, uh, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, and as human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. 
The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear for torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid to waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid to waste. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, help us to have understanding tonight. Help me to teach clearly tonight. And I pray, God, that we would leave tonight absolutely sure that we want nothing to do with Babylon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We start with the first lament. It is the lament of the kings of the earth. We know these kings. They committed sexual immorality with Babylon and and they lived with her in luxury. They, they, They weep over her and wail over her when they see her smoke rising up. These are the ones that were in bed with her. You remember them from 17, verse 2, chapter 17, her very expensive clientele, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. In 18, verse 3, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. What does this mean? Like, What did this look like at the time of the Roman Empire? Well, let's recall what the term sexual immorality means. Certainly it points to sexual immorality itself, but it's bigger than just that. Sexual immorality itself is actually a symptom of the problem that the term sexual immorality represents. It's a phrase that points beyond itself to something much worse, to spiritual infidelity. It is an effort at autonomy apart from God. In the same way that a wife who steps out on her husband to be a prostitute would be saying, I reject your provision, I reject your love, I reject your leadership, and I am going to go and find pleasure, and I am going to go and find provision apart from all of that. That is what humanity does with God. Humanity says to God, we don't want you, we don't want your love, we don't want your principles, We don't want any of that. You get out of here. You get out of here with your provision. All of it. We don't need you. And when you reject God in this way, it will ultimately devolve into some sort of sexual immorality. Romans 1 tells us that. Now when God gives someone over to a debased mind, it is going to manifest itself in awful sexual immorality. And with that in mind, how did the kings of the ancient world... Reject God, get into bed with Babylon, seek power apart from Him. Well, they did it the same way the kings before them did it. They did it the same way the kings after them do it. The same way the kings today do it. The kings, the senators, the presidents, the leaders of parliament. You know, pick your country, pick your title. But leaders are willing to sacrifice any and every moral just to keep power to to say anything, to get the population to follow them to gain influence, to build wealth. Because hey, if getting into bed with Babylon 
means the pleasures and the luxuries of Babylon belong to me. Well, the world's leaders, they're all, they're all too eager to do it. They can't wait. They can't wait to jump in the sheets. We wouldn't say this is the case with every king or every leader. I don't want to put that on everybody out there. God calls some good men and women to lead, does he not? But we would have to say this is the case with many of them. It is evident in the way they govern. It is evident in the speech that comes out of their mouth. It is evident in the way that they live. These are people who just change with the times. They walk outside in the morning, lick their finger, they stick it up in the air. Oh, the wind's going this way. Well, I'll go this way. And then they find the crowd. They sniff out the crowd. They find the crowd. And there's a big crowd there. They're very excited. And they run from the back of that crowd to the front of that crowd and go, look what I'm leading. Look at me. I'm leading this big crowd. No, you're not. That's just the world going along with the evil principles of the dragon. And you're just running out in front of that crowd. And you're saying, I'll go along with the evil principles of the dragon if you'll call me king. If you'll give me the power, if you'll give me the influence, and the world says, sure, look at this one. He represents us. She represents us. True godly leadership will stand alone on convictions, even if the horde is going the opposite way. But this is not the way the kings of the earth live. So they cry out and lament in verse 10. Babylon was once great. Not anymore. She's been reduced to nothing in a single hour, in a very short amount of time. And in this section of verses, when you see the wording, for in a single hour, what it signals is the end of a lament. This is the end of the lamentations of the kings of the earth. It's Babylon's funeral. There's nothing they can do about it. They stand up. They say their words. They sit down. And they know they're next. So, number one tonight, those who sought power from Babylon, lament her. If you seek power from Babylon, you will be sad when she falls. The rest of the words of verse 10, and much of what we see here in this text tonight, is supposed to draw our attention back to the book of Ezekiel. Again, so much of what we see in Revelation, it's these anchors where you, you, you get it, and if, you, if you, you look at the rope coming up off the anchor and you follow it, it's just going to take you right to God's Word in the Old Testament. And so if we follow this anchor here, and we follow that rope, it's going to take us to Ezekiel, and it's going to tell us about the destruction of Tyre. The destruction of Babylon here in verses 9 through 19 and the fall of Tyre in Ezekiel are parallels. Ezekiel 26, verse 16 Then all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones and remove their robes and strip off their embroidered garments, and they will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and be appalled at you. They will raise a lamentation over you and say to you, How you have perished. You who were inhabited from the seas, O city renowned, who was mighty on the sea, she and her inhabitants imposed their terror on all her inhabitants. The princes of the sea mourn the fall of Tyre like the kings mourn the fall of Babylon. And Tyre was a very natural Old Testament reference to liken to the judgment of Babylon. Because Tyre was a lot like Rome. If you looked at it from the outside, it looked pretty, but if you went inside and you really got to know it, it was grimy. It was much like Babylon. It looked beautiful, right? All of the jewelry, the golden cup, and the pearls, and, but inside of the cup, it's abominations. Tyre was a Phoenician city. It was located in a very lucrative position in terms of trade and commerce. 
And the way they built their money is they constantly pitted the Assyrians and the Egyptians against each other. They were warmongers. They would have the Egyptians and Assyrians fight, and as each country needed them, they would build wealth. The merchants in the city were famous for ripping people off. The city was a hotbed for religious idolatry, for sexual immorality. But they felt this geographical position that we have and this wealth that we have makes us invincible. And Tyre was known for hating Jerusalem. They looked at Jerusalem jealously and rejoiced when Jerusalem suffered. And so they were enemies of God. And Ezekiel said Tyre would be destroyed to the point it would look like nothing was left but the top of a rock. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. It's like if you got down in the flower bed at home and you just kept scraping and scraping and scraping until you finally just hit rock, right? That's all that's going to be left of Tyre. Like the city's not just going to fall. God's judgment will be so thorough, it's just going to look like somebody just scraped the flower bed down to the bedrock. Tyre's so evil, it's described like Satan himself. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Tyre fell in Old Testament times in part, but it wasn't until 324 BC when Alexander the Great came that it was taken down to the ground and the prophecy was fulfilled. But by the time of the New Testament, it didn't take long, just a few hundred years, Tyre was built back up. It gained some prominence again. Jesus spoke of Tyre and Sidon in his teaching. But before it was rebuilt, Alexander made it like the top of a rock, and God's words came true. Babylon in 539 B.C., Tyre in 324 B.C., Rome in the 4th century, and in the end, the whole world of Babylon will be brought to destruction in judgment. And when it happens, the kings who made their bones, who got their power from being in bed with Babylon, who put their hope in her and their trust in her, they will watch her justice and anticipate their own. And that justice will come to them in the great supper of God's justice in Revelation 19, 17, and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, uh, free and slave, both small and great. Do not make the mistake of the kings of the earth and seek power in this world. We've seen how those who sought power will lament her fall. Let's look at these merchants in verses 11 through 17. It appears they're after profit. They're building wealth. It's part of it. But in truth, the wealth is a pathway to something else for them. Let's look at the the first few verses here that precede this lamentation from the merchants. These verses are a parallel to Ezekiel 27, where Ezekiel is listing out all the goods, all the wares that the merchants are no longer going to be able to sell because of Tyre's destruction. When Tyre falls, all the merchants are standing there going, oh man, what did Alexander do? Took Tyre away. We depended on Tyre. And just as that passage lists out the goods being sold, so do verses 11 through 13 here. These merchants we're talking about sell the absolute best of the mineral kingdom. 
gold, silver, jewels, wood, bronze, iron. I guess wood would be from the plant kingdom, right? Uh, Bronze, iron, marble, and the chariots that come from these materials. And they also have the absolute best of the plant kingdom. Linen, which comes from the flax plant. Cinnamon, which comes from a tree. Spices, incense, frankincense, myrrh, wine, oil, flour. And the absolute best of the animal kingdom. Pearls, purple cloth, which comes, uh, the dye for the purple cloth came from snails. Silk from silkworms. Scarlet cloth, the scarlet dye was gathered from insects and oak trees in the region. Ivory, which of course comes from elephants and a few other mammals. Cattle, sheep, horses. They got it all. They're selling the best of, of rock, the best of plant, the best of animal. And the awful combination is seen in verse 13 where these merchants are selling people. People. Human people. Before I get to the second point, I want to take just a couple minutes here and set the record straight a bit regarding the Bible and slavery tonight. Because I see this as one of a couple of key New Testament verses you can set up alongside a key Old Testament verse and understand the Bible absolutely does not condone slavery in the modern sense of the word. And more than that, the complete emancipation of slavery finds its principles in the Scriptures. Owning slaves is something that was common before the law of Moses was even given. So God did not create slavery with His regulations. He spoke into the world in which it existed didn't institute it he regulated it the law allowed hebrew men and women to sell themselves into slavery to other hebrews and the law insisted they be treated well and the arrangement collapsed for six years and then in the year of jubilee the slave was to be released and it wasn't just a hey we'll see you later thanks for your service slap them on the back here's a bushel you know here's some like fruit to go on your way a nice fruit basket for you you were supposed to give them everything they needed to go and set up their life They were supposed to leave with like full hands to go and set up a life. The law also allowed Hebrews to have Gentile slaves. Hello. But again, they were not to rule over them with brutality. You may bequeath them to your sons after you inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. They didn't drive everybody out of the land like they were supposed to, and then some of those folks ended up in slavery or in some form of servanthood to the Israelites, but even then, they were to treat them with dignity and respect. The law also provided an option for the Hebrew to sell themselves into slavery under a Gentile, but the Gentile was instructed by the law to still release the Hebrew in the year of Jubilee and for the Hebrew to be treated with dignity. And the New Testament keeps in the spirit. God speaks to the slavery system of the ancient world. He calls for gospel reform through his word. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Slaves had no rights in the ancient world. This was was wild talk. So this transcended the way that the culture uh, around the New Testament spoke on the issue. Paul taught that there's no problem with a slave being a brother in the Lord. No longer as a bondservant, he says in Philemon 16, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
You might ask, how come the New Testament didn't just outlaw it? And Alexander McLaren answers, the gospel meddles directly with no political or social arrangements, but lays down principles which will profoundly affect those and leaves them to soak into the general mind. And that is true. The principles to end slavery, they're all there in the Bible. God built it all into his beautiful word. People are made in the image of God. These divine regulations regarding slavery in the ancient world that stood alone among their contemporary counterparts. Slaves being accepted as brothers in the Lord. The redeeming and freeing nature of the gospel itself. And so it makes sense that it was always going to be the church who rose up and said this should stop, that it should still be the church rising up and saying this should stop. But even with that said, I want to point out the Bible is clear about the type of slavery you and I as Americans are most most familiar with. Exodus 21, verse 16, in God's law, whoever steals a man and sells him, I think that's pretty clear, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. You want to go kidnap somebody from their home and treat them like property? The law of God says you should die for that. In the Old Testament, under his law, that was his prescription. I'd say it's pretty clear. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Now we know that the law is good, the law that we just read. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. What he's saying is the law exposes this sort of sin in us. For murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and then listen to this, enslavers, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It's tough, I'll be honest with you, it's tough because there are men that I love in church history that own slaves. And there were men who knew better who looked at them and said, you shouldn't be doing this. And those men did not repent. Not all of them. It's tough. I'm not saying they weren't Christians. They lived in a different time. It's a complex issue. But man, it's tough because I love me some George Whitfield, but boy, did he own slaves without stopping. Even though he had friends saying, you need to stop this. Here in Revelation, you see the culmination of the evil of the relationship between Babylon and the merchants. It's people, man. They've got the best of the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom. That's not enough. They've got to go beyond that which God has created is good, that which they have, they've taken that he's made, um, everything he's made is good, and they've said, we're going to buy and sell this as if it's our own. We won't give them a lick of thanks for it. We'll sell all this gold, frankincense, myrrh, scented woods. Who needs scented wood? Apparently, rich people in Babylon, right? Got to have the scented wood. All this stuff, they take it, buy it, sell it, act like God doesn't exist. That's not enough. That level of idolatry is not good enough. They want more. And so they'll go and they'll take that which God said is very good in creation, humanity, that which he created in his image, and they will enslave them like property. This is... This is an offense to God in terms of, his theft, of stealing from his creation. We're going to take people you made for your glory. We will ensure they are about our glory. Slavery is not over. There's 27 million slaves, they say, in the world today. Many of them are children. And the church should be at the front of the fight 
to end it. Governments and celebrities don't care. That's the reality. The heavenly voice from verse 4 speaks again in verse 14. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. All the merchants can do now is think of the glory of the past. With Babylon judged, they will never enjoy the pleasure that comes from their evil business dealings with the world. Never again. And in verse 14, we're seeing the real pursuit this whole time. It was about more than money and possessions. They wanted the best of the mineral kingdom. They wanted the best of the animal kingdom. They wanted the best of the plant kingdom. Because those things gave them pleasure. And that's what they were chasing. This is beyond the physical. You think that these rich people that you see out in the world, they want all this stuff just for the physical part of that stuff? You think those fancy lamps and carpets and all that stuff they've got, that's just for the physical? Absolutely not. It's about what's going on in the heart. Is a pleasure in the heart over the physical. And the souls of men long for the fruit of pleasures, uh, the fruit of pleasure that, that riches bring. In the inner man, people don't find pleasure in God, they find pleasure in the world. And as long as the world's goods are stacked up high, their guarantee of pleasure lives on. It's a dangerous way to live. Number two, those who sought pleasure from Babylon will lament her. If you seek power from her, you'll lament her in the end. If you seek pleasure, you will lament her in the end. You will not have this pleasure again. That's what verse 14 is all about here. The fruit for which your soul has longed has gone from you. It's gone. This must have been the feeling that the merchants of Tyre had as they watched it burn at the hands of Alexander the Great. This must have been the feeling that the merchants of the world had as they watched Rome burn in the 4th century at the hand of the Visigoths. Where are we going to make our money now? But of course, new cities rose up. Constantinople, London, New York, Tokyo, Norfolk. I mean, just, you know, name a city. And when it dries up, the merchants will go, oh, just go find a new city. You ever gone to a part of like an inner city where the police don't even go anymore? You ever seen those places? Where like capitalism has picked up and moved on? And the people that are left living there, it's like the Wild West. You ever seen those places? That's because Babylon got up and left. Babylon said, oh, can't make money here anymore. And the merchants left. They've gone to find somewhere else. But in the end... When God's judgment comes, there will be no new city to go to, to, to sow your evil in and to make your money and to sell your wares. It's over. The evil network of humanity will be brought down to the ground. It will never be uh, found again in the sense that we know it. In this, this fallen world that we live in, it will be decimated. And this section concludes with the second lamentation of the passage, the eulogy from the merchants, their final lament for Babylon. They stand far off in verse 15. They know the same judgment is coming for them. There's no more cities to run to, no more pleasures to be had. All they've got now are memories. Like a widow at a funeral. And it's time for the merchants to weep and wail because their harlot has fallen. As Tom Schreiner says, the day of the harlot's judgment has come and now they can only think nostalgically about a past that will never come again.
The lament itself is a eulogy for the former beauty of Babylon. They loved her. They loved her and all of her prostituting counterfeit beauty, but now she lies in a coffin, cold and lifeless. All that fine clothing from chapter 17 is gone. That purple and scarlet linen, the gold, the jewels, the pearls. All the scented wood's gone too. All the supposed wealth, all the beauty, it's all come down in a single hour. It's all been laid to waste. All the schemes, all the systems we've come up with to make money so we can go out and we can find joy and happiness apart from God. All the complex uh, economies of the world, the parlors, the bars, the theaters, the brothels, the royal throne rooms. Everywhere humanity's gone to drink from Babylon's cup, it will be brought to nothing. All the ways we've come up with to get pleasure from riches. God will destroy in an instant when his son returns in judgment. Do not make the mistake of the merchants and seek pleasure in this world. We wrap it up with the the final couple of verses here. It's all who make their trade on the seas. In verses 18 and 19, closely related to the merchants who make their lamentation in verses 11 through 17, in the sense that they're about accumulating wealth. And here the focus is not so much on the pleasure that comes from the wealth, it's on the provision. These are people who depend on the ports of Babylon to survive. The shipmasters, the seafaring men, dock workers, ship owners, sailors, the passengers, the workers upon the ship. Those who made their trade on the sea, trusted in Babylon to provide for them. Those who go along with her wicked ways in order to make a place for themselves in the world. Now I want to make a distinction because I know that we've got some folks who made their money on the sea here in this room, okay? Who served this country on the sea. Uh, Some of you have um, made your money on the sea in other ways, working out the shipyard or uh, whatever. You don't trust in Babylon, you trust in Christ, brother and sister. So this isn't about you. This is people who have come to the world and said, you are my God. This port, this sea, this ship, this is all I've got. I live for this. I make my money here. I'll do whatever it tells me to do. This is it. And those of you who trust in Christ and you spent your time around the sea, you know people like that. You know exactly who I'm talking about. You worked with them. You may still work with them. You've come out of the world. You are in Christ, but they live in the world. Those who sought prophets from Babylon will lament her. Verses 18 and 19. They cry out when they see the smoke go up from her destruction like a funeral pyre. Saying, what city was like the great city? It's the same cry of the generation that would see Tyre made like a smooth rock. Ezekiel 27, 32, in their wailing, they raise a lamentation for you and lament over you. Who is like Tyre, like one destroyed in the midst of the sea? This is how people reacted when Rome fell as well. Remember our early church father, Jerome? He's a brother in the Lord, but even he lost his head right into a high-born woman from Gaul. He said, if Rome be weak, where shall we look for strength? Well, brother, remember what, we, remember what we believe, right? We look to the Lord for strength. But even believers were shook when Rome came tumbling down. If that's how a, a believer felt, how do you think those who made their money from her ports and from her industry felt? How do you think people who put all their hope in her felt? 
Jerome took his eye off heaven for a moment and got shook, right? These aren't people taking their eye off heaven for a moment. These are people fixated on the smoldering ashes of the harlot because they loved her and they trusted in her. The only care they have of heaven is their realization that God's judgment is coming down from heaven against their love. And again, they're like mourners at a funeral in verse 19, throwing dust on their heads. They're crying. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid to waste. Much like the merchants, all the seafarers can do now is eulogize the woman that they loved. She never loved them back because prostitutes don't love you back. She just used them to keep the depravity and the rebellion churning. But oh, how they loved her for everything they had on their plate, for everything they had on their back, for everything they had in their homes, for the very ships they steered through the waters. They attributed attributed all of it to her, and they loved her. They loved the world. And so they weep and wail as she burns, because she was their hope. And now they are hopeless. The one they depended on to grow rich and to make profit, she's gone now. The one who laid her to waste in a single hour, will do the same to them. And that's why they, like the merchants, stand far off in verse 17. You also see, if you look at verse 20, which we'll focus on more next time, they cry out, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. They mourn it, but they recognize what it is. God is giving justice. It's the Lord. So do not make the mistake of all whose trade is on the sea and seek profits in this world because in this world alone you will have your reward. We won't be in Revelation together again, like I said, for a few weeks. So I want to leave you with some good stuff because we have been, it's been heavy, I know. So let me just leave you with a good thought here. Going back to King David's choir director in Psalm 73, remember how he'd nearly lost its faith? It was a wearisome task when he considered how the wicked prospered. This brother was struggling until what? Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Asaph remembered who God is. He, he goes and he worships him as a God of justice. And then he goes, oh, that's right. You're going to destroy the people who rebel against you. There will be justice for this evil. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Is this not the story of Babylon? Destroyed in a moment? Isn't that the refrain that we heard from Babylon's lamenters? For in a single hour laid the waste. For in a single hour judgment has come. We might look at those who stand on top of the world and see their power and think, why are people like that running the culture? And we might look at those experiencing the heights of pleasure and think, why do they get to taste that in their souls? And we might look at those who are making large profits off of the evil in this world and think, why do they get to have all those wonderful toys? We have to remember that they're playing king of the mountain here. You remember that game? We used to play it down at War Memorial Baseball field when we were kids while our dads would stand around talking forever. We would get on the gravel piles and the mulch piles that VDOT had left around there. 
And you get up to the top and you go, I'm the king, but you're only there for a second because some other little beast spears you off of it like Lawrence Taylor. That's what the world's doing. I'm the king, and then somebody else just knocks them off. Most of them can't stay up there their whole life. How often do we see people rise and fall, even within a year? You'll see somebody get famous, burn hot, burn out. Even if you can manage to accumulate enough wealth and enough power to live in total pleasure for a lifetime, at some point you will die. You can't stop it. Oh, how they want to stop it. Jeff Bezos is worth, what is it, $200 billion or something? Do you know he's involved in this thing called the Live Forever Project? They're trying to extend human life by 50 years. They're going to mix monkey cells and human cells together to reprogram the human body. I know some of you probably think I'm wearing a tinfoil hat. That if I told you that a bunch of billionaires got together in a mansion somewhere in Palo Alto during COVID to try and figure out how they could live forever, you would think, that's a conspiracy theory, brother. Don't talk about that from the pulpit. That's an MIT article. That happened. That's real. They will not live forever. No matter how much they want to try and change God's design. Mixing monkey cells and human cells together. You know what that is? It's trying to build a tower to heaven. It's Babel. And the truth is, is that their end will come. God will make them fall to ruin. They will be swept away utterly by terrors. Destroyed in a moment. Mix up all the cells you want. Throw dolphin cells in there. Get wild. It doesn't matter. You're not going to atone for the sin of your soul that way. Those who are far from God because they're still devoted to sin... Those who are unfaithful to their Creator and they are faithful to the Babylon of this world will perish. That is the warning from the choir director. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And when that happens, when the world is defeated, the city of man will fall, everything will get flipped on its head. Those who suffered for the Lamb will suffer no more. Those who went without for the Lamb will go without no more. Those who are powerless because they would not take the mark of the beast will be powerless no more. Those who were impoverished because they couldn't buy and sell in the marketplace will be impoverished no more. The reasons the kings and the merchants and the seamen come to Babylon's funeral to eulogize and throw their ashes in the air is because they are no longer on top of the mountain. They realize they're not standing on the pinnacle anymore. They're under the point. The mountain that they stood on has been flipped upside down and what they stood on now crushes them. And they stand far off at her funeral hoping this won't be the case, but it will. But for you, believer, who has been living under the pressure point in this world, you've been under the mountain of suffering for Christ in this transient life, when God flips everything on its head in judgment, you will now stand on the pinnacle. And there's not going to be any king of the mountain being played. You will be a co-heir with the king of Mount Zion. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So hold on. The wicked might have power right now, but you're going to reign on the new earth forever. The wicked may have pleasure right now. You will have pleasures unending, flowing from the right hand of God to your glorified heart forever on the new earth. The wicked may have prophets now. You will have prophets beyond measure when the King of glory shares his entire kingdom with you on the new earth. 
Be willing to suffer for Christ now, knowing you win in the end. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The last thing I'll say to you tonight is, have you ever considered those beatitudes in the negative? Blessed are those who wait on the Lord. But what comes of those who bow down to the beast and choose the instant gratification of Babylon? Let's try it. Cursed are those who are full in this world, for theirs is the kingdom of man. Cursed are those who are celebrating this world, for they have their comfort now. Cursed are those who are proud, for they have their inheritance now. Cursed are those who hunger and thirst for evil, for they are satisfied now. Cursed are the brutal, for they shall receive brutality. Cursed are the sinful in heart, for they will not see God. Cursed are the divisive and quarreling, for they are not children of God. Cursed are those who revile Jesus' people and persecute them and utter all kinds of evil against them falsely. Mourn and be sorrowful, for you have your reward now and not in heaven. Do not make the mistake of the kings and the merchants and of all whose trade is on the sea. Father God, help us to hold on. Help us to hold on, Lord. It's, it's a vapor, this life. A mist. It feels really long some days. But 70 years, even in strength 80, your word says, teach us to number them so that we would realize it's not that long yet. We can hold on because we have the king holding on to us, because we have his grace gripping us, because his mercies are new every day, we can hold on. Because the daily bread will come as we ask for it. Because the forgiveness will be there as we confess our sin. Because you will work forgiveness in our hearts for those who are our enemies. Because you will protect us from the evil one. We can hold on. Hold us fast, Lord, as we hold fast to you. We reject the bed of Babylon. We don't want to go to that funeral. Not as mourners. We rejoice. We are the children of heaven. We are the children of the King. And we will stand with him on Mount Zion one day. Help us to hold on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.